and welcome to Dragon Bites Basics, the paediatric podcast aimed at healthcare students or anyone in need of a refresher about basic conditions in paediatrics. My name's Asim, I'm one of the paediatric trainees in Wales and I'm one of the hosts for the main Dragon Bites channel. However, our basics episodes are hosted by local medical students from our universities in Wales. Before we get into the episode proper, I just wanted to send out a reminder This is an introduction to a new topic and not meant to replace your regular revision. And it's also worth bearing in mind that there are variations in practice, both regionally and that practice changes with time. This week's episode is all going to be about head injuries. One of our medical students from Cardiff University, Alex Richards, well, I say medical student, she's now a fully graduated doctor and qualified last year. Congratulations, Alex. She interviewed Dr. Tom Cromarty, who's currently studying paediatric emergency medicine at Southampton. Anyway, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the student edition of Dragon Bites. My name is Alex Richards and I am a final year medical student at Cardiff University. Today I am joined by Dr. Thomas Cromarty, who is a paediatric emergency medicine trainee in Wales, and we will be talking about head injury. Hi, Tom. Hello. Hi, Tom. So on placement the other day, I saw a patient with a head injury, and I was just wondering whether we could have a chat about it, if that's all right. Absolutely. Let's do it. So first of all, I kind of had a look at the literature and stuff and was just wondering what the main types of head injury are is the sort of a classification system yeah I suppose um, head injury is probably like quite a broad brush really um, I, that probably refers to any injury of the head you know including you know anything from superficial grazes and hematomas on the front which is the you know the general ones that we'll see all the time from falling on your face to all the way to the other end, you know, where there's some intracranial um, bleed um, from a kind of traumatic or a traumatic brain injury, really. So um, it's a big umbrella term. And I suppose a classification system would, the general one is based on the GCS, on the Glasgow Coma Score. And it's kind of adapted from adults, but breaks it into, I suppose, three, just from mild, moderate and severe, with mild being GCS of 13 to 15, moderate 9 to 12, and and severe being less than 8. Um, that's probably the, the most common classification system, with kind of concussion being in part of the, um, the, the mild GCS end. Okay, and what is... So concussion is mild traumatic brain injury, is that right? Yeah, I think uh, it's one of these things that's a bit fluid and it's changing and... Um, through over time you know as things do in medicine they get grouped into different areas but I I think at the moment my understanding is that it's within that that milder end of traumatic brain injury not to say that it can't have you know really significant effects on kind of morbidity and and people's general well-being and can be quite chronic as well but actually the actual incident I think is is in the mild TBI um, area. Okay that makes sense thank you and then Thinking about this child that I saw the other day, are there any sort of risk factors for head injury at all in children? Yeah, um, I think I find that probably the most important thing to think about when you think about risk factors, and and generally with anything in paediatrics, is to think, getting a real understanding of what's happened, um, and 
taking a really clear and concise history. And so histories with head injuries, we want to know the time that it happened because um, that's going to be important about figuring out how far down the line we are and, and what we're expecting to see when we do the examination. Um, most importantly is the mechanism of injury and just trying to figure out what has happened to this head. Um, you know, is this a little child that's tripped and fallen and hit their, the front of their head where your skull is quite thick? Or have they tripped and fallen backwards and hit either any other part of the, the skull which isn't, isn't quite so thick and so is, um, you know, injured more easily? The, the forces involved, have they just come from their own height or were they on a slide and they've fallen off the side of the slide? Or are they in part of, you know, in, in a road traffic accident where there's bigger speeds and, uh, and bits of more energy being um, transferred between the head and, and other areas? Um, we want to know if at the time there was loss of consciousness if there was how long was that for um, you know children will often um, do kind of breath holding um, but we want to know you know were they were they out of it were they floppy and unresponsive and how long was that for we want to know if they've had any seizures um, it's, it's not uncommon for kind of a traumatic seizure to happen um, and perhaps we worry less about that than we do about seizures that happen further down the line that might be indicative of you know some kind of intracranial process going on um, but still obviously seizure, seizure at the time of the injury is important um, and then afterwards we're thinking you know are they old enough to tell us whether they um, are feeling nauseated have they been vomiting uh, could they remember remember the incident before you know we're talking about amnesia before and and since um and i think one of the other things to think about is do they have any other medical problems you know are they someone who's had a um uh, valve replacement and they're on warfarin there are children like that do they have a bleeding tendency they'll probably know about already um hemophilia or something um which is going to mean that they're going to bleed more easily than, than other children uh so i think they're some of the things that i would think about yeah, definitely. And for exam purposes, I think they're pretty much all of the red flags, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're the red flags to be thinking about. Uh, there's a few other things I just wanted to mention on history while we were there. And it's something that we should, you can almost get away with any answer in paediatrics is non-accidental injury. Um, and yeah, so with that, within, uh, within paediatrics, head injuries come into really two different demographics. You've got the kind of less than one-year-olds where there's a peak and then the adolescents where there's a peak there. And the less than one-year-olds, unfortunately, tend to be the ones who are getting, you know, serious brain injuries from non-accidental injury, whereas the older ones are getting serious head injuries or significant head injuries from being adolescents and doing things that they really shouldn't be doing. Um, but when we think about non-accidental injury, I'm thinking... You know, is there a delayed presentation to what's happened? Has the history between um, different healthcare professionals or the different parents and caregivers, has that changed at all? Is it the same each time? Um, the most important thing is, has does the mechanism that has been described um, match the developmental age of the child? So it's a good, good to have an understanding of the, you know, the classic milestones. Um, but just because a two-year-old has apparently um you know walked and fallen over 
if there's someone who is actually a two-year-old with learning difficulties who can't walk, then obviously that doesn't correlate. So um, to always think about uh, non-accidental injury. And that comes on to, on to examination because um, I suppose what we're looking for in examination is really in an emergency situation, you, want to, you really want to um, establish the normal, are they safe for us to examine? So I want to do an ABC assessment with protecting the C-spine because if their head's been through a significant trauma, then it's likely that their neck has been through a similar trauma as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And just to recap, what are the C-spine um, protections in children? Um, what do you mean by protections? Um, like immobilisation. Oh, immobilisations. Um, so we would, you know, often um, collars are used. Um, it definitely pre-hospitally collars are used, but we tend to shy away from them nowadays and replace them just with blocks. Um, so blocks and tape. Uh, some of the um, the kind of scoops that get used have got the ability to put them some, you know, immobilization on there. And then you've always got manual inline stabilization. So just using your hands to keep them in the right position. But the um, definitely we're trying to move away from um, collars because they inevitably um, are either put on the wrong way or even if they're in the right way, they're very uncomfortable, make the child um, quite upset and and can increase intracranial pressure which we don't really want and just a nightmare so we, we try and change them. Fab thank you and then going back to kind of after your examination so you want to do ABCDE and then do you do a full neurological examination? Yeah definitely um, you know I think one of the things that I've noticed is if you can practice doing you know examinations anything that you think is important, an important skill. I would practice it whenever you get the chance. So any patients that are coming in with potential head injury, um, there are some signs that are quite subtle that you might only pick up from doing a, you know, a complete examination. And the more that you do them, the more that you, you notice what's normal, and then the more that you notice when it's not normal. Um, so um, definitely ABC was making sure the C-spine's there. Um, doing Part of D is doing your GCS assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to go through that? Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the GCS is put into three different categories. And when we say it, it's probably a good practice to, instead of saying what the GCS is kind of out of 15, is to say what they are of all the different modalities. Um, so the first, well, well, it doesn't matter really what order you do it in, but the eyes is the first part of it. Um, and that tends to be out of four, uh, with one being nothing, no response two being responding to painful stuff, three being responding to verbal stimuli, and four being spontaneous movement. And then the verbal, the V part of uh, the GCS is into five, with, again, one being no response, two being uh, incomprehensible kind of language, three being being kind of comprehensible words, but just inappropriate, four being slightly confused, and five being well-orientated and and normal really Uh, and then the final one is m which is motor and that's going to be you know one is nothing two is the cerebrate so that's essentially kind of you know i'm thinking arms going outwards really and then three is decorticate so that's all kind of flexion rather than that was extension before um 
then four is withdrawing you know when you do a painful stimulus they're just reacting to it but just not not being able to localize it five is then localizing where that is and kind of pushing your hand away and then six is obeying commands really so yeah i think it's good practice to try and again when you say a gcs say it out of 15 and then just say what each of the um the different modalities are um so gcs is in there you're looking at the pupils uh, are they reactive what size are they you know is one of them sluggish or not not reacting at all uh, to light um and then it's important to look you know at, at the head itself is there is there a boggy swelling there that's in, that's growing um it's, a, it's only through feeling lots of <laughs> lots of hematomas that you recognize what's a hematoma um or what's a boggy swelling um you know if you're just feeling one for the first time it's difficult to tell um you can feel depressions in the skull you're looking for signs of a basal skull fracture uh which would be um looking in the hemotymp looking in the ears and the eardrum and looking for blood behind the 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 drum there hemotympanum looking for blood behind the ears um a battle sign looking for kind of bruising or around the eyes like raccoon a raccoon sign um I don't know if I missed any there. Do you think of you can you know any more of the basal? I think that's no, I think that's all of them. That's yeah. Or yeah. I suppose we're thinking about any fluid, blood or clear fluid, CSF coming from the nose or the ears as well would be really important. Okay. And then all these kind of signs and symptoms, I know some of them are on the criteria for CT head. So would it be okay yeah. if we kind of just went through that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh so that's you know, Head injuries in, in pediatrics are extremely common. And for that reason, there's been plenty of research done over the years. Um, lots of the research groups like Peruki in the UK and um, PECAN in America, CATCH in Canada, um, and, and NICE as well in the UK have all done reviews of, of quite big amounts of research that have been done on these, on these head injuries especially looking at the mild ones, because that's the most common ones that we see. Um, and recently there was a review done, and I found it quite useful. And, and you can see that on Don't Forget the Bubbles, which we'll put a, um, a link to in the show notes. And it's really useful just to get that out, really, and have a look at it each time. But essentially, it's got, um, it's got a bunch of um, different signs that we've talked about there that would help you risk stratify them into low risk intermediate risk or high risk yeah um, and you know i think it's worth just having a look at that really yourselves um because um i think it's difficult to, to explain it really <laughs> um but yeah you'll you'll be risk stratified and that would mean whether you can just have four hours observation senior review or get your ct head you know because we know that um what's happened historically is that too many children have had ct heads yeah, and that doesn't come without risk. You know, we're trying to to use the Alara principles within pediatrics to use as as low as reasonable possible amounts of radiation. And although CT scanners are getting you know better and better as time goes on with the amount of radiation they give, it's not an insignificant risk. And you are you know there's been studies to show that you are imp- increasing the risk of you know brain tumors and other cancers from from radiation. So where we can do, we want to reduce that, um, and that's what this these kind of algorithms really help with um so so yeah I, I just have a look at it I even 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 now i look even though i've seen it lots of times i always just check on there um because where we can 
we want to reduce the number of scans that we're doing. I mean, what, for example, historically, uh, vomiting was the one that really just meant that ch- lots of children had CT heads, whereas there's been some research done to show that isolated vomiting on its own, um, you know, after the injury is quite common and, and on its own isn't a, a significant risk factor that we should be doing imaging of the head on. Yeah. So that's really reduced the numbers of scans that get done. And and I suppose in paediatrics, we always need to remember that, um, especially in hospital, observation is is as good as any um, intervention, any test that we can do. Having a look at them for four hours, doing neuro obs on them um, means we really build up a good picture of what's happening with this child. And it's, you know, it's as good as any test that we've got, really. Yeah, definitely. And I think that leads quite nicely on to kind of what are the next steps for the management of head injury? Maybe thinking yeah. about kind of mild on one end and then severe on the other. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose if we start with um, <coughs> on the milder end, um, that's going to be children that really probably don't need a scan. We're thinking about children who maybe at the time had a GCS of 14 or something, and now they're completely well. We're looking at a well child without any neurological signs. If they have got neurological signs, generally that will mean we'll do a, a CT scan. On the low end, um, it's going to be reassuring the parents, especially with regard to concussion, making them aware of um, you know, the, the things to look out for um, are, in the in the next 24 hours you know we we tell them about red flags to look out for so that would be things like consistent vomiting afterwards yeah um, drowsiness and when it comes to concussion it's they've got loads of different symptoms that can be in there so from physical symptoms like headaches and dizzy uh, dizziness and nausea um so not sleeping very well and having some blurred vision um cognitive deficits so people talk about um almost being fuzzy uh, and not having a memory um and not being able to do some of those tasks as easily as they would do before and then emotional changes as well so there's uh, emotional ability um you know being upset at things they wouldn't normally be being more anxious uh, and having low mood um so whilst those symptoms are going it's important to tell them that they need to have complete rest um and so that's kind of bed so physical and brain rest. Um, and, and unfortunately, that in, even in this day and age, it means no phones, you know, no TV, just completely just chilling out yeah. uh, and not, not going back to doing anything until those symptoms have gone. Um, so I suppose that's from the more mild end. Um, when we're looking at the more severe end, it, it's kind of um, more simple then, where, you know, if someone's got a neurological deficit or they're, they're, they're unwell from that point of view, then we, we're, we're much more comfortable managing them because we know we have to do stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, depends on how bad they are. But if, if we're talking on the far end, you know, where they've had to be intubated and we're wor- worried about the, the pressure inside their head, then we want to think about techniques to optimize their perfusion in their brain. And um, there's various principles that we need to think about. But basically, we want to keep their cerebral perfusion pressure high um sometimes we use hypertonic saline to help with that um and you know eventually they're intubated with we're giving really strong sedation so that their metabolic drive is very very low you know we're um, sedating them and uh, we're using 
Um, what are we using? We're using um, muscle relaxants to make sure that you know they, they're, their metabolic drive is as low as possible. Okay, um, and then what sort of other things can you do to um, reduce the intracranial pressure? Yes, uh, so there's various various things we need to think about. So we we want to keep their CO two level the uh, normal. We want to keep away from any hypoxia. We want to keep their blood pressure as as kind of stable as as possible. We don't want swinging blood pressures. Um, we want to pop their head up to I think about thirty degrees, which is a lot more than you think when you when you think uh, <laughs> you're pump, pumping the end of the bed up. You probably normally gets about ten degrees, and you think that it's a lot. Uh, if you think they're about going to be sliding off the end of the bed, you're probably getting to about the right the right position there. Um, and this other thing, keeping the glucose normal, the sodium normal, mm-hmm. um, basically keeping things as straight and narrow for as long as you can, while that that pressure in the brain or that inflammation and everything and bleeding is being um, managed. And you know the neurosurgeons are involved nice and early. They have a look at the scans and tell us whether they need to decompress, um, put an ICP bolt in to figure out what, what the pressure is. Yeah. Um, so at the far end, there's plenty of stuff that we can do. Okay. And when do you think about referring to neurosurgery? I think as soon as they're, um, you know, if we're talking about patients that have been intubated and have on the report of the, of the um, they've had neurological signs beforehand and the report has shown some kind of intracranial injury, I'll always be asking them to have a look and, and come and see the patient yeah okay and um, often they won't say I, I'm not I won't see the patient until there's been a CT head yeah <laughs> thank you and then just to finish then how do you kind of follow up these patients say they've had um, a serious intracranial bleed or yeah. even just concussion do you follow up all of the patients with head injury or yeah that's a good point um, I, I think I suppose from from my end on the ED end Obviously, we're not really following any up. I think if they've had a significant head injury where they have any kind of neurological deficit afterwards, then they're definitely going to be followed up by a multidisciplinary team. So there's the CBIT team, which is a kind of community-based brain injury uh, team. Uh, They'll be working with the neurologists and the neurosurgeons to, um, to keep an eye on the patient afterwards. One of the other elements to think about is um, kind of anti-epileptics. So I think often with significant head injuries, they'll be started on some form of anti-epileptic to reduce the chance of any seizures because obviously seizures won't be good either during this period where we're trying to keep them nice and stable. Yeah. Um, So yeah, they, they would get followed up, but I'm not sure, you know, if, if someone who recovers completely um, and as a normal base level will get followed up. Um, and then on the on the mild end um we kind of always advise follow up with the gp in two weeks um and if they've got concussion symptoms like this this really nasty post-concussion syndrome that can have significant morbidity effects on a on a a patient and the family um you know i've seen a girl who's come off a horse uh, and was kind of really before just really high functioning doing everything um doing well in school and then after that that traumatic brain injury really struggling and and having non-epileptic seizures and all kinds of things that have happened from that so um i think follow up and definitely just making people aware of the red flags and and what to be um to be worried about if it happens to, to seek more help fab well thank you very much tom
Oh, you're welcome. So just to quickly summarise, so there's three kind of main types of head injury to classify. And it goes from mild to severe, and it's mostly based on GCS, which we've been through. Mm-hmm. And then the approach to the child with a head injury and ED, do a thorough history, look out for the red flags and the high kind of risk factors such as non-accidental injury, seizures. Um, and then if they are vomiting, you need to think about whether they've got any other symptoms. And there's the specific criteria for um, CT head in children. And as we want to keep kind of radiation levels as low as possible. And then management is kind of dependent on how severe or mild the head injury is. So there are some guidelines for concussion um, and they kind of do graded phases um, back depending on symptoms. But bed rest is recommended. And then on the more severe end, you can have kind of neurosurgical involvement. um, And yeah, I think that was kind of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose the only other things that I wanted to mention was um, if you think that their their whole body's been through some kind of injury, um, although we do a primary survey, you know, if they've been through a a major trauma, then it's important to do a secondary survey because they might have distraction injuries. Although they're talking about their head being sore, they could easily have other injuries that haven't been picked up. So although you're doing a primary survey to make sure that a secondary survey happens in those major trauma patients. Okay. and just mentioned just you're never alone there's always people to talk to um some other podcasts that i found really useful um there's a pediatric emergency medicine podcast that has got a a a review on this um two peds in a pod has got a really good uh talk on concussion um and i think there's another one called the pen playbook that talks about concussion as well so there's there's tons of stuff out there um, and, and like I said earlier, that don't forget the bubbles, um, predicting pediatric trauma, traumatic brain injury has got a really good flow chart on there um, and some examples to work through to, to practice. Fab. That's great. Thank you, Tom. That was really helpful. Welcome. No worries. See you later. Bye. Great. And I wanted to say thank you to both Alex and to Tom for recording that episode for us. I hope you enjoyed it. Join us again next week where we're going to make a switch back to our main Dragon Bites episodes and we're going to be starting a series on rheumatology. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.